Welcome to Voices and Views on Great Falls Public Radio, KGPR 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Thomas Risberg, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing the Chief Juvenile Probation Officer here in Cascade County, Jason Rippenberg. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, right off the bat, something that I have pushed on throughout my time hosting the show is what I see in our country emerging that I've termed a culture of contempt. What I mean by that is we have social media, we have 24-hour news, we get tiny little snippets about our leaders, uh, innovators, doers, people that are in the public sphere. And oftentimes, that's all we know about the person. We form these assumptions about that person that are typically wildly inaccurate, depending you know, on where we sit on the political spectrum, what our views are. And I think what we've lost as society is getting underneath that superficial, this is my position on you know, X or Y. And understanding the values, what a person's history is like, what has gone in to form them, and why they do what they do. And so having this long-form show, I want to just do this tiny little part that I can, that we have control over, to put a, a narrative out there in the public space that gets across the depth of who our leaders are in our community. And so when you interact, you may think, you know, I disagree with Jason on X issue, but boy, I heard that interview, why he does this work. And I know that this comes from a place of deep love and passion for youth. And if we can get that at scale, we can start to really remove some of the venom that I think we've seen. Uh, certainly a, a change in kind of the, the vibe, so to speak, in, in throughout our country. And so, Jason, with that somewhat long introduction, I want to ask you, you know, where were you born? What was childhood like? And what were some formational experiences that developed your values? Uh, you know, I'm a fourth generation Montanan, uh, born and raised in Fairfield, Montana, small community, 700 people. Uh, loved it. Close knit family, close knit community. Everybody knew each other. You, you know, we. Uh, we lived out on the bench, so we were about 13 miles west of Fairfield. Um, but, you know, went to Greenfield Elementary School, graduated through there, went to Fairfield High School. My dad was a graduate of Fairfield High School. My grandfather went to Greenfield Elementary. So, you know, we have, they, they settled on the bench, you know, back in the, the early 30s, I believe it was, you know, raising cattle, just working hard, you know, good family values. and. Growing up like that in that community, I, I think that's where it all began for me. Um, you know, it was uh, mom stayed home, my dad worked, and, you know, she took care of us. It was just my sister and I, but, you know, so we were a, a small family, but close with aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody. And, uh, you know, my grandparents were from where they homesteaded, they moved you know, roughly as crow flies about six miles from there. And that's, you know, where both ended up passing. And, you know, as I grew up, we uh, moved up there onto that homestead uh, just to take care of my grandma as she got older. And so it, truly, I think that's where it all started for me. 
just to see what family and community really meant. And, uh, you know, it, it was hard to, uh, I guess, leave that to Great Falls, which isn't a bigger community whatsoever. But, you know, for me it was like from Fairfield 700 people coming to a thriving metropolis and feeling almost lost, left out, nowhere, you know, having to build relationships again. So, you know, my family still lives there and you know, we visit every, so, as much as we can, probably weekly even. Absolutely. So I think that what I take away from that is the importance of connection. Correct. That you grew up embedded and it's like a fish in water, right? It's not like you're like eight years old thinking to yourself, wow, this is really special that I have all of these people that love and care about me surrounding me and, and looking out for my best interest and helping me out when I stumble, that it, it's natural. But I, I think something that we'll talk about a lot in the future in this in this conversation is that's not happening for a lot of kids. It isn't. And like I said, at eight years old, I didn't think about it. At, you know, probably 10, 12, 15 into high school, I almost resented it because it was like, Everybody was in my business. Everybody knew what I was doing before I was even going to do it. And But what I take away from that is kids don't have that these days. Just exactly what you said. And why was I afforded that and why these kids can't? I, I That's my mission. I, I want kids, families to feel that support uh, that they just, that, that I felt and that isn't happening now. And I do think that it's, this is me put on my teacher hat a little bit. I taught fifth grade in Memphis, Tennessee for two years. And kids do want boundaries. They need them. They crave structure and stability because, you know, it's it's tough being a human, right? I mean, we got a lot racing through our minds. And so if you know when I when I come into the classroom – this is what we start doing. And then I get recess at this time. And then I know we're going to you know, take a bathroom break. And then I get music on Tuesdays. It allows them to have a sense of security. And I, I think we understate that as a society, that there's such a, a focus on individualism, right? And, and we, we lose track that, yes, we want liberty. We want individualism, expression. But especially with our younger folks, they need to have, you know, they're not born with this understanding of, of society and, and the way the world works. It, it's a formative experience being in school, being a, a child in a community, in a family. And that if, if we don't provide it somehow, right, whether it's family, community institutions, right, it will hinder them throughout their life. I to testify to that, I, I see it every day, you know, with it in our own office. Uh, you know, kids come into us, and to use the term lost, I think is a little too broad or too, it, it leaves a little too much open for interpretation. But once you give them that guidance, that's, that's what we do. You know, we provide structure, we provide guidance, and you can see from, you know, a three-month intervention, a, a six-month up to two years, three years intervention, they do thrive. They succeed. They can be and are successful. And and I want to give our listeners a, a full overview of of Certainly. kind of the the broad you know juvenile probation. Here's how many kids we have. You know this is what our programs are. And I, and I want to move to that right. At, I want to last 
give our listeners your path, right? So you grow up in this community in Fairfield, and then where do you connect from, do that theme of connection from Fairfield embedded here in this great community to wanting to and then becoming a, a juvenile probation officer? I graduate high school. I'll kind of start from there. And I didn't really have a a direction I wanted to take. Military was my first option. Um, Long family history of military. Uh, Unfortunately, I had a a pretty good car wreck when I was a sophomore in high school, and that disqualified me from the military. Too many surgeries and that kind of stuff. So I was kind of floundering for a little bit. I was like, well, do I start college right now? I mean, because that was the push. I mean, I graduated early 90s, and... You know, it was college or bust, or military or bust. And so college and I both agreed at that time that we probably were better off without each other. And I said, hey, uh, to a friend of mine, let's let's go on a fishing boat. Let's go to the, you know, the Bering Strait and, you know, never see dry land for months and months and see how we come out of that. And uh, I, I think that at 18, 19 years old really gave me a sense of the individuality that you, you spoke of earlier. And I realized uh, I needed people. I needed my mom. I needed my dad. And I, I came back and, you know, got involved with a girl I went to high school with. Didn't really know her. I mean, crazy to see, you know, in a you know high school of 100 kids. We knew each other, but, you know, we didn't really run in the same friend group. And, uh, you know, she... She had some great direction in her life, and you know, thankfully, she gave me some guidance. So, not necessarily took over that parent role for me, but you know, it was just an extra support system. And you know, finally decided that college was a good bet. And I tried running a business and successful, did very well for ourselves. And uh, you know, at at 21, she said, "It's time. You're spending too much time with the business." You know, at, you know, we just had our second child, you know, and uh, she said, you should start college. And she was actually going to University of Great Falls, or excuse me, College of Great Falls, because that's how <laughs> long ago it was. Yep. And uh, she's studying education. And she said, you know, you should look into some programs here. And I'm like, you know, what do I want to do? And my dad was in law enforcement back in the 1970s. Uh, he was a deputy sheriff in Teton County where... Uh, we grew up, and I said, well, they got a pretty good criminal justice program. And so I, you know, we got out of the business. It was a, a little restaurant, pizza place, and I went to college, you know, started in January that uh, that, that semester. And, you know, it, that's where the bug bit me. Um, I had a terrific professor and college advisor and Cindy Matthews, uh, one of the most genuine souls I've probably ever met really, really guided me to where, uh, you know, cause criminal justice is so broad. Didn't know where I wanted to go. So she was a past probation officer, you know, had a degree in social work and, um, you know, really learned about kids from her and thought, this is, this is pretty cool. I like this stuff and had an opportunity, thankfully to my, uh, my brother-in-law, and got a job at the juvenile detention center. And the administrator turns out she was she's actually from Fairfield as well, and so there was that connection. And 
you know, I started working there full time, going to college, uh, raising a family, driving from Fairfield, sometimes sleeping in my car in the parking lot at, you know, College of Great Falls and then into the University of Great Falls. And like I said, that's where it resonated with me, you know, working with those kids in the detention center and seeing, you know, what they were exposed to and families and uh, I, I just knew that this is where I need to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think it's like many of us, right? You you see this need and just saying, oh, that's really tough can be hard, right? That you just kind of have that, you know, I would call it a sort of shepherd's soul, right? That when you see folks, and you can see from your own experience, right? When you were on, I was, you would say you were on Deadliest Catch before it was cool, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, you realize it was pretty lonely out there on the Bering Sea, and it, it takes you that feeling of, you know what, maybe my role is to help others that don't have, you know, they can't come back ashore and go back to their family in Fairfield, right? That they're yep. sort of just wandering around and I can be that person for them. And I love those seminal experiences. And then you have that one person I talk all the time about with our kids. The most important thing is that they have one person that they can trust, that is caring, that shows them that they're valued. And when we start having folks say, I'm going to be the one, I'm going to be the shepherd, we're going to see, you know, these trends change, right? That these are not implacable, impossible things to provide every child with that person. And I just want to thank you for being that person to so many young folks. Absolutely. It, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, this is 22 years into a career, uh, spent seven at the detention center, 15th year in probation. And it, I loved every minute of detention, um, you know, worked up through, you know, the ranks to shift supervisor, and then I became part of the the compliance and transportation piece, and that's that's really where I got to know these kids. I mean, you get to spend some time on the units with them, you know, maybe running some rotation groups outside, playing basketball with them, and you know, but you know, driving with kids, you know, a couple hours, you know, to a placement or you know something like that, you you get to have conversations and really get to know them and what they need. I mean, kids open up. They, like you said earlier, you know, they, they need that structure. They thrive off that structure, whether they know it or not. But, you know, just to have somebody to talk to, somebody that listens to them, yeah, but really listens. I, yeah, I, I think that has really driven my career. And, you know, it, it took me seven years, I don't want to say to get out of the detention facility, but I really thought probation would be where I could make a big difference with kids and families, especially. You don't get to deal much with families when kids are in detention. So uh, it was a hard gig to get into. Um, you know, I applied myself and got to know all the probation officers. I was doing some community uh, supervision on uh, home arrest, having the ankle monitors and such. So I would uh, do that program with the detention center. And like I said, I got to know some of the, the probation officers really well, but you know, nobody ever retired. And I, I think it was because it was such, you know, a fulfilling job and the people that were there cared about it so deeply. When I 
finally there was an opening. Um, you know, one of the old chiefs retired, new chief took over, and there was a position. And I was so excited. And, uh, you know, I applied, finally got that phone call. They offered me the job, and I'm like, I'll be there tomorrow. Right? Hey, you know, if you, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you, want, a, you want a couple of weeks, I'm like, okay, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll be there in two weeks. And, you know, I've never looked back, but, you know, I go there, and one of my former chiefs was, you know, 45 year career at juvenile probation. Another chief that just retired when I took over, 45 years, you know, and we had probation officers that were 25 year vets. Uh, we had one that retired last July, I believe that was 30 year career. You know, we have three of us in the office now. We could, we're the old timers at, you know, 22 and yeah, you know, I think we all have about 22, 23 years experience now. And it, it's just, you get into that and those people start to, you know, you build those relationships and it, it, it fosters and just, you know, brings about more of the feelings of why we do what we do. And um, I, in my position as chief now, I, I, I think it's, it's terrific. And I did help with some of the hiring before, but, you know, now, you, you know, I, I get to ask those questions of, you know, people sitting across the table from me and say, Great, you have qualifications, experience, education. I appreciate that, but why do you want to do this job? You know, what are you going to give to this job and these kids and these families? And to listen to some of the, you know, I get I get almost emotional. And uh, the the uh, when I got promoted to chief, uh, the gal that I hired to take my position, to me that was like, this is me. I want a, a mirror reflection of who is going to be in this position. And, you know, she actually was our, one of our front office ladies and she had a terrific background, you know, worked within the school district. Um, she had CPS background as well. And I knew from the start that she wasn't, you know, going to answer telephones for us forever. Uh, although she was a, you know, a great asset there. Uh, she learned and she listened and the way she interacted with families that would come in was just, I'm like, wow, when we have an opening, you know, she's going to be terrific. And, you know, sure enough, promotions come. And, you know, so she interviewed and I'm going to tell you, she was fantastic in the interview. And we actually had another probation officer from a different judicial district that applied. And it, it was hard, you know, because you know, this person is dedicated five six years, you know, to that position. But here we have somebody in the office, you know, that knows our families. And so it was a tough decision, but it really wasn't. And uh, so when I brought her into my office to let her know that, you know, she was uh, no longer going to answer telephones for us. And we both got emotional and you know, we kind of cried together. It was, it was cool just to see that she cared so much that, you know, she, she got emotional about it. So. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I can say that we have had we have a tendency right to monetize everything in our society and it look extrinsic motivators work right and a lot of times that's money but intrinsic motivators also work and it's that's the true you see that 45 years shoot you know i mean most places they're happy if they get you for four right <laughs> four, yep. and you just see that it, it has that virtuous cycle aspect to it. I love being able to talk about virtuous cycles where you have these true believers that come in, 
right? And yes, I mean, it's a great profession, right? Just from a, a compensation, it's work that's meaningful. But truly, if, if you're someone that's going to stay there for 45 years, it's not for the money. Exactly. It's yeah. because you love it. And you have that group of people that all have that similar mindset, right? And are there because deep in their soul, they have this yearning to help young people and and to give them opportunities in life and uplift them. That's a pretty good work environment. You know, I can't complain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I just love seeing that. And then, you know, you see it's those kind of cycles, right, where you see the person come in and they're at the front desk and now, you know, they're you and you, you know, now you're going to be, you know, eventually, right, the the 45 year, you know, the chief and the the person yeah. looking back and it's those are those beautiful things about about society and humans, right, is all those passing on of knowledge, passing on of passion, experience, all that. And so, I think that's a great segue to give our listeners now the nuts and bolts. So people hear juvenile probation, I think everyone's aware that that's a thing, right? Yeah. What does that look like in our community? You know, how many uh, staff, how many kids under supervision? What are the things we're seeing? So sort of the the nuts and bolts. Sure. So, and I truly think that, you know, juvenile probation in recent years has just kind of come to light. Um, you know, when you say it's a thing, I, honestly, I, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I don't know that people really knew we existed. I have good friends, you know, that I've been friends with for 20 years. And, you know, they knew that I worked at the detention center. They know what I do now, but they can't necessarily differentiate the difference. Like, you you still work in a jail? Like, what is it that you do? So, uh, you know, part of my job, and I'll, I'll get to the nuts and bolts piece here in a second, but, you know, that's why I'm... <laughs> It's affectionately called Jason's Roadshow sometimes in in the office because I'm getting out more, just trying to educate people. Um, you know, we had one of our chiefs was a you know a former legislator, you know, in a couple terms, and so you know he was out doing the good work. And uh, you know, another chief, she has law enforcement sons and you know nurse daughters, everything. So uh, the word's getting out, but. You know, for me, it's like, how do I carry on that legacy to educate people on what we do? I think that's important because in the beginning, you, you talked about social media and good, bad, and different. You know, for me, I'll read on social media when kids get arrested and, you know, it generally revolves around schools and some of the comments that you can read about kids and it just deflates me. And so I, I took it upon myself to say, you know what, those are the instances that are on social media because I, I think that draws people's attention in. And that's not an accurate reflection of the kids in this community. Uh, it's, it's what makes the news because, you know, uh, a kid that got a good news note phone call from the elementary principal home doesn't make the news. You know, I mean, it's good for our hearts as parents, but no one else sees that. So like I said, they, the POs in the office, like I said, refer to this as Jason's Roadshow because I, I, I want people to know what we do. Absolutely. And I, so that Bleeds It Leads, right, has been with us for a long time. And it does just give you a 
fundamentally skewed perception of what your community is like. And I think that's the difficult conundrum is you see this mostly with local government, right? Is you know local government's doing a great job when you don't hear anything about it, right? <laughs> and that's, you, you know, it, in some sense, you, it's understandable, right? You know, if it's not broke, why fix it? But it it also it has a community that doesn't understand the value of these institutions, right? And they're not understanding that for every time you see that child, right, that's on the news, that has a social media post about them, that there are 10 that are fundamentally changing their life through their time with juvenile probation, right, and are going on and they're graduating high school and they're going to college, they're getting involved in the trades. And so you start it again, I think it, it leads to this self-fulfilling prophecy where people start to say, oh, it's hopeless, and they throw up their hands. And if you don't have people in a community that are willing to get in there and be part of the change, right, to be that connection, you will eventually have yeah. a community breakdown. But it it's one of those things where it's the perception is driving reality in a negative direction where if we could switch, you know, it's like looking in a room, right? A dark room and you shine a flashlight in one spot in that room. Well, you're going to know very little about what's going on, but you keep doing that and you start believing that that's the only place in the room. And sure enough, right? Like that's going to affect the rest of the room because you're not paying attention to anything else going on. Exactly. And I think it's that same effect that you could multiply out throughout our country, right? Because... It, it has always struck me that in the last 10, 15 years, as I've kind of, you know, come into adulthood, the level of negativity in our society has, it's like I live in a different world. And I think it, there's nothing you can look at objectively that justifies that, right? You can't look at the United States and or Great Falls, right, and say, wow, this is like a really terrible place. I mean, by any kind of metric of of wealth, of, of income, of health, right, there's a lot to love. And when you look at the United States writ large, I mean, there's never been a society that's this prosperous, free, innovative, you name it, and yet the narrative that we're receiving is of, of doom and gloom. And, and I think, you know, you look at some of these broader trends of like mental health, right, obviously has been a major issue. You look at these numbers amongst our kids, right? How many are depressed? How many, you know, are, are thinking about suicide or attempting suicide, right? And you've got to make a connection to what we're feeding them because that's the world that they're growing up in today in many ways is a far better world than in the 1980s or certainly you know if you go back to 1900 right it's like one in five kids die before the age of five yeah. couldn't agree more I, what you said about the narrative i think that's the important piece you know and i'm not going to say like my head was in the sand but you know coming from small town usa to to great falls it's it is a, a wide awake like experience uh, eye-opening and so when, what I come from with that is, you know, I, I don't want to say it's all you know, puppies and rainbows, but certainly you, you choose which direction you want to go. And if you can help foster that in other people, 
yeah, I mean, why why take that road? Why why look at the negative when exactly what you said? There's so much positive. I mean, it's a no wonder we lock ourselves in our rooms, and you know, why would we want to go out? It's a big spooky world, but there's so much that has to offer. Absolutely. And so I always joke, you know, you talk about perception. So I grew up in St. Louis, right? Big cities. I lived in Memphis. I lived in Washington, D.C. And so I I come out here, you know, and I'll have people that, oh, you know, things have changed, you know, and and, and implying that things have gotten worse, right, Right. in the community. And, you know, I kind of always have to chuckle because I'm like, you know, it's all what your kind of guidepost is i come out here to great falls and i'm this is the best place i've ever lived like by far i tell everyone like you know i've lived in close proximity to millions of people my entire life is the first time i've ever lived in a community it's real to the extent that you have a negative perception about great falls i think you need to look at your internal perception right i'm a big believer that like we don't see the world as it is you know we see it as we are correct and and you know kind of where your lens is and then i encourage you to get off the couch, stop watching the news, stop looking at social media, and and get involved with the youth that yep. that, that you're working with, right? Get involved. Go outside, and volunteer, absolutely. It will change your perception for the better. And so, you know, I, I think we really hit on to something that, and I I love that you have taken that belief, right, and, and focusing on the positive and sort of actualized it at juvenile probation and parole. And so talk about where you're getting the kids and what, what you're, you're working with them on. Sure. Uh, 98% of the kids that come into our office are law enforcement referrals. So they receive, receive a citation either from the police department or the sheriff's office, sometimes highway patrol. Uh, that's our demographic. You know, and there isn't a, like a statutory or an office policy on how young. I mean, that's officer discretion. We've worked with kids that are eight years old sometimes, you know, they get uh, maybe a shoplifting ticket. I mean, you would see something like that, but you know, all the way up till age 18. And in some instances, I mean, if they're after 18, when they get a ticket, they don't necessarily come to us. But you know, if they're working with our office prior to that, we have a caveat where we can work with them till age 21, some instances up until 25. So really, you know, as a whole society, government, legislation is looking at adolescent brain growth and development and saying, you know, 26 years old is about when everything's kind of fully formed. So why are we putting 18 year old kids straight into adult probation, parole, or, you know, into adult jails, adult prisons, there should be something else that we can do to work with these kids in the community and, you know, hopefully keep them out of those adult institutions. So, uh, that is one positive that I've seen, certainly. But like I said, those are the kids, the age group, the demographic that we're seeing. And, you know, when we get them in the office, it's all about strengths and needs. So what are you good at? What do you like to do? What do you want to do? Okay, we'll gauge those. We'll write them down. We do some assessments. Uh, you know, of course, we address the behavior that got you here, the meat and potatoes of it. But, you know, and then we... We use that to help work on some areas that, you know, we see and the family and the kid because truly it's their plan. You know, where do you want to go? I I can measure a kid's success or failures by my standards, but for me, if I do that, they're never going to be successful. 
uh, because I will hold everyone you know, to the highest. They're not going to get there. So you measure them from where they came in and their gains according to them. Yep. And for me, that, uh, I guess, helps make the job a little more palatable just because then you see more successes. Like I said, if you, if you are trying to have that kid live up to your expectations, you're going to see a lot of failures and you're going to see burnout for yourself because, well, I'm not doing a very good job. This kid isn't, you know, graduating high school. Um, I tell new probation officers all the time, you have a kid with truancy issues. Sometimes we'll deal with those. Um, you know, a kid is skipping two classes out of his seven a day and, you know, maybe three times a week. Well, you know, if you work with them for a month and then they're skipping, yeah, you know, maybe one day here, that is a measurable gain. They're still skipping a full day, but man, we went from two periods, three periods, three times a week to just maybe a day. I mean, and that's the, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, absolutely. right? Absolutely. So yeah, I might've uh, steered away from the direct question there, but <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so yeah, I mean, as far as types of offenses, I mean, are you, I I'd say right now, property crimes are probably our most serious offenses that we see come into the office. Um, you know, followed by some sort of family assault, partner family member assault, uh, maybe some disorderly conducts. We, we kind of categorize them into the, to the same only because, uh, you know, disorderly conduct could be you and I challenging each other to fight or, you know, kids getting up upset at school. We see that quite a bit. Um, you know, maybe using some abusive or profane language at school towards a staff member, a teacher, another kid. Um, we see, we see that quite a bit. Um, uh, yeah, those are probably our. And I just top. to give our folks kind of a, a idea of the scale of it, right? Like how many, and these don't have to be exact numbers, but you know, like how many youth are being referred to you each year, sure. you know, for citations, something. And then broadly speaking, you know, are, are we talking that you have, you know, a dozen property crimes or are we talking about a hundred? You know, what's the kind sure. of magnitude? Uh, uh, the trends are actually going down. I mean, even, even though that you, like I said, you see what you see through social media on the news uh, here, uh, and I'll just say, you know, we've been capturing data for the last, you know, 25 years, but, you know, really in a, a good solid system, probably the fat past 15, I mean, that we have good, accurate data. And I'll say that far back, 15 to 20 years, we were seeing easily we had truant officers in school so kid missed a period kids were getting tickets and you know we would get a thousand of those every year just school referrals uh you know so our numbers were you know 1800 2000 citations and so that that could be you know x amount of kids getting multiple citations each year so uh, you know a duplicated number of kids uh, and, and like I said, throughout the years, we've kind of honed it down a little bit so we can get a, a better uh, look at actually how many kids come in. So now we're doing, you know, this year, well, uh, 2022, I haven't gathered 2023 statistics yet, but 2022, you know, we're looking a little over 300 referrals. I mean, citations, kids that come into there. Um, and 
each one could have multiple. I think we were roughly close to 600 actual tickets from yep. kids. Yeah, you so. have some that are racking up uh, a certainly, lot of certainly. citations. But I, I think the, the core thing that you can get across then is some of it may be enforcement, right, that they're they're looking a little less you know closely at truancy in some cases. But I, I think that there's a perception that has started to really, in this community, gain currency that things are going way downhill. And that, so as someone that's been in there over the last, you know, 20 plus years, it's not like what you're seeing today is catastrophic relative to what you were seeing 15 years ago. Absolutely not. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll say when I first started my career, we had far more serious offenses, violent offenses that were coming in the office. Um, you know, kids that were taking baseball bats to other kids, you know, we had a, a few homicides and, you know, I mean, we've had homicides recently, but you know, they're deemed either negligent. They're not deliberate. You know, there was some action that happened that caused the homicide, but you know, it wasn't intentional. Yep. So we, we definitely get some of those as well, but you know, we had in the past, I mean, kids that were out to hurt other kids, community members, I mean, just, it was random, not so much anymore, um, which is, you know, that's good. And I, I think it's, it's obviously good, but I, I want to attribute it to, I'll say the education of the community, the education that we're giving kids when they're referred to us. And then, you know, what I always say is that kids are kids. And despite this behavior, could be, you know, the most atrocious behavior that you've ever seen, but they do grow out of it. And so long as we can kind of just make sure it's not generational, somehow give them that power, that intrinsic change to say, enough's enough. This isn't how I want to live my life. I don't want my kids to follow in the same path. That's where I think we start to see successes. Uh, so super quick, I'll transition back when I first started. You know, and uh, I took over the spot where my chief was. So I inherited a few of his kids that he on on caseload. And we started seeing, you know, when he started his career working with these kids, they had kids. Those are the kids that I have seen. And, you know, that tradition, I hate using that word, but that tradition kind of continued. Um, yeah. In some instances, we're on the third generation of families. And that is the vicious cycle that we hear about, right? Absolutely. That is real, and we can't ignore it because we're not going to be able to get a handle out of it if we don't acknowledge it and invest resources and look at what is it that's being repeated that's leading to the same outcome, you know, for the second and the third generation of folks. And if you had, you know, with all the experience you've had, what are what are the com common threads you see amongst you know these generations? Uh, poverty for one. Certainly. Uh, and, and just, uh, I mean, you learn it in textbooks and, you know, it, it is true is that it's kind of an inherent distrust or a, a negative, a primarily negative view of anyone else's intentions. Like if I, if I'm trying to approach you to give you a hand up, help you out, you know, it's just been, they've never received that help or never asked for it, never wanted it. And why are you coming to talk to me? I, I I don't need you. I can make it on my own. So, 
I, I don't know necessarily how we've influenced that. Again, education, I believe. Uh, and it, that's, where I, that's where we're starting to see some absolute change, real change. Um, you know, we're doing so many different programs and, you know, even through word of mouth, uh, I'll say, you know, parents and kids that we've, we've worked with in our office, sometimes we get phone calls from them saying, Hey, I've got, you know, a cousin or an uncle or, you know, kids are kind of, you know, we see where they're going. Could you give them a hand? You know, we might not even have a citation on this kid, but we'll, we'll take those types of referrals. Just call them a parent referral. I love it. Uh, That's family, wonderful to hear. Yeah, a family referral. Yeah. So just call up. You know, those cold calls are a little tough. I'll tell you, you know, like you have a concerned family member. And then, so yeah, we'll say, sure, we'll reach out. And we do. Man, sometimes that phone hangs up pretty quick. Like, probation? What? Of course, we expect that response. But, you know, just maybe a couple more phone calls, a little more persistence. And, you know, voicemails, certainly. And... Sometimes they reach back out. Yeah, it's we, planting seeds. Yep. We've, we don't, you know, we don't necessarily, I don't want to say advertise. It's probably a poor word, but we don't see a lot of those types of calls, but we can take them, um, you know, and we, we have seen success. And what I would say that that is indicative of is that the community is seeing you not as a, you know, coercive force, but as a helping force. You know, I, yep. I think that there's, Typically, you know, you take law enforcement, right? I think coercion is the word that comes to mind, right? It's punishment. Yeah, punitive, and, absolutely. And that now it's getting to a scale, right, where you're see, people are seeing you as their advocate, the person that's going to help them, right? And, and I think that that speaks very uh, highly, right, of, of the job you guys have done over, over many years to shift that perception, like you say, of going out into the community and proactively saying, hey, here are the interventions we offer. And people are saying, you know what? I guess I, I don't want to see them first get a citation and then, you know, start this kind of formation process, right, of helping them form their character and have structure. Absolutely. Let's do it now. Absolutely. And so when they get in, however it is, yep. what is the most likely interventions they're going to see. And I know this is very individualized to each kid, but just to give our listeners a flavor of, all right, so you get a citation, they come into your office. What what are some of the things you're doing with the kids? You know, we, uh, all the literature, everything says, you know, the less contact they have with the juvenile justice system, the better. You know, in the long run, they're going to be better for it. So we definitely, it's, it's, it's evidence-based. We take that approach, you know, so... If a kid does come in, when a kid comes in, it we want to make that interaction quick, but with the most meaning and impact that we can. Uh, you know, I tell probation officers, leave them better than you found them. I mean, that is bottom line. That's our goal. But do it in an efficient, timely manner, you know. Um, so kids will come in, depending on the offense, whether or not we handle it just within our office through some diversionary tactics. Uh, it, it could be reduced to writing where we sign a, a contract saying these are the things that you're going to follow. If not, we're going to maybe follow up a little more seriously. Or if, depending on the fence, if we refer it to the county attorney's office for formal prosecution. Great thing. I just had a, a chief's meeting last week. And so this is pretty good timing. And we got 
tons of praise throughout the state. We're working with uh, the Council for State Governments on doing a youth court improvement project. Super excited about that. It is going to change everything about what we do for the better. Super excited. But uh, so we got, you know, these folks from Washington, D.C. that are looking at the state of Montana and, you know, our, our foundation, our bones of our justice, juvenile justice system, and they, they want to work with us. They want to say, what can we offer you to improve? They couldn't say enough that, well, I'll say here in Cascade County, but statewide, you know, we're doing about 70% of all kids statewide that come in. Uh, we're working them through diversion programs, meaning they're not getting further or deeper into the juvenile justice system. We're handling in office, you know, quick, expedient, and like I said, giving you the most skills, services that we can. Cascade County, we're 85 to 90% of the kids that we see are handled informally. And that is very impressive. And just so to clarify for our listeners, that means that there are not formal charges that go to the county attorney's office for them to be prosecuted and have a yeah where judges get involved attorneys get involved a formal juvenile record Uh, there is a a misnomer that you know when you get that ticket that and you are you go through the court process and you have a formal record it it is still a civil process just because you know you're you're a juvenile you're under the age 18 uh, you're considered delinquent, you're adjudicated a delinquent, but like I said, it, it's actually a civil record, not a, a criminal record. Now there are it, 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 truly some semantics in there about how those are reported, you know, as far as do I have to claim it on a job application that I got, you know, cited for an offense or something? Well, technically no, because it is a civil process, but you know, honesty is the best policy, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I've I've had those. Uh, you know, the, the MIP is the one that you think of, right? Absolutely. Is that you know, do you need to re- report that something that happened when you're 17? Yep. And honesty is the best policy, but that's for our individuals to yeah. decide on their own. But I yep. think the highlight there that I, I I think is very important for our listeners to understand that's really so 85 percent, 85 to 90 percent of our folks yeah. are being in diversion programs that are working. And then that's the one that I would, so of of these percentage of kids, right, that don't go into the formal adjudication, are we seeing a, a, a relatively small percentage of them come back with new citations? Yeah, I would say, uh, and again, I, I don't wanna give you necessarily too old statistics, you know, I, I, I should have ran some, but you know, our recidivism rates, you know, are, you know, we count it. Recidivism is such an arbitrary, I mean, people measure it differently wherever you're at. So how we do it is from first citation to closing of case, and then we can measure it a year out or two years out, um, you know, depending on, you know, what report that I am running for state purposes. You know, usually we go one year out. So by the time you were referred to us and you're, your diversion, even your, let's say it was a formal probation, but we'll do the informal. When that was over, when your obligation and we parted ways, we go a year out and we're probably less than 13%. Okay. So that, that to me is very impressive because it, it means not only are you not having to formally adjudicate them, what the diversionary interventions you're putting in place are 
you know, you can't say it's causal per se, no. but it's certainly a very strong correlation that folks that engage in our diversionary programs, it makes a, a lasting change because we see that they're not getting another citation, that something has been imparted to them that has been a catalyst for them to make life-changing certainly moves. Data proves it. Yep. Yeah, you know, that's the importance of data is we can see what we're doing, if it's working or not, you know, and that's why I always, we have a lot of paperwork that comes with the job and that's, you know, that's not the most fun part. People don't necessarily like that. But I said, or I always tell them, this is how we get our funding. So, you know, the, the better data, the better the input that you do, you know, we're going to continue to get funding for all these programs. So, you know, we want to make sure that we're doing it with fidelity and yeah, great bunch of POs that we have here. I can't say enough about them. And, you know, whether or not you can say, well, the data shows that it's working, whether or not, you know, how long afterwards we don't, we don't go that far down the road, but you know, I'm going to take a, an educated guess and just say that, you know, that 13% turns into probably 75% that never come back. So, ever to the ever. criminal justice system. Ever. I mean, that's a, that's a phenomenal figure. I, I just. And so I do want to, what, I, you know, the fact that you have people coming nationally, right. That are looking at our state as a model for juvenile justice, but also Cascade County in particular. One thing that I think always troubles me about the way funding is allocated, right. Is oftentimes success is okay. Things are great. Like we'll pull back the dollars. Right. And then you're not able to keep doing the things at work. Right. right? And where, when there's a, you know, fire, right. You get all the money and it's, yeah. it, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive, right? Like it'd be like a business that's providing terrible results, gets all the money. And the one that's operating efficiently and effectively gets nothing. You know? Well, well oh. we, we see it and that's how, uh, you know, through legislation, I mean, that's how it works is, you know, we report our numbers locally and the more citations that we're getting, the more funding that we get. But so, or like I said, when we're successful, they pull back those dollars. And we, we can make do, but man, if, if, if what's working is working. Yeah, have you ever seen that? Exactly, because it makes me think like, let's double down, right? Like, let's make sure that these programs are, are implemented universally and the ones that we see that are really making the difference let's double down on those that is there any movement at the at the state level or you know is most of your funding coming federal state state yep i mean there are certain programs that have connection to federal dollars that we try to use medicaid programs things like that that we try to use but you know it's it's state money and so this just makes me think i know we just finished session and whatnot but is there any kind of movement to sort of change some of the metrics to not, you know, I, I think the right term is it's punishing success and to sort of have metrics involved in like, if you reduce recidivism, you know, we'll give some kind of benefit. And I'm not saying it's necessarily monetary to the the juvenile you know probation staff i'm not saying it's not that's not a horrible way to do things now i get the the downside could be you know you'll have a tendency to juice your numbers right like oh, I, of course yeah. i see but th that's kind of you know you can do fraud in any way right i've never believed that like well it's 
potentially fraudulent where it's like, well, everything you do in life is. So that's kind of right. a universal argument that, that doesn't really hold a lot of water with me. But I, what I want to focus on there is, is at least being elevated so that the people at the Department of Justice, state of Montana are understanding how you could have some pernicious funding where the people that are doing the best job get the least funding. Uh, I think the talks are out there. Certainly. Um, I don't think there's any legislative issues with that. Um, well, I'll say that probably the past three legislative sessions really have started to concentrate and focus in some areas of juvenile justice. Uh, we're seeing some pretty terrific legislative changes and then, you know, some that they do, well, how do I say this uh, <laughs> bureaucratically? Yeah, and, diplomatically. Yeah, without really uh, put my foot in my mouth. But, you know, a lot of the things that we do are under a microscope. And I, I, I get and appreciate that legislators are trying to do what they feel and believe is in the best interests of kids and families. Um, but certainly a lot of the things that we re rely upon to help fund different areas that we we may not that might not have a stream elsewhere are getting cut. Um, so that that you know training, for instance, is a big one. Um, and I I can't speak enough about education for our probation officers, our you know mental health professionals, everybody. And that's kind of one, like I said, a stream that. Just because of the way the dollars work, it's it's difficult for me to expand upon that without. Uh... <laughs> yeah, but I think generally, you know, I think our listeners as as citizens and taxpayers, right, need to understand that, you know, we all are have a vested interest in in seeing our juvenile justice system have folks that are well trained, uh, that are able to competently and and compassionately work with our kids. And and just to sort of be aware, right? right. That so we don't we don't uh, all or not allocate, but we don't have any sort of uh, fine structure in youth court. Uh, we do have fee structures. Uh, this legislative session, and, and I don't disagree with it, but this legislative session has eliminated all fees associated with youth court. Um, so. You know, here just in the recent years, we started, you know, applying some nominal fees. But like I said, those fees help train probation officers. We, we put that sort of money back into programs that we may not have another funding source for kids. You know, we may, we may you know, buy some therapeutic coloring books or, you know, something for kids through that. Um, we, we take them on trips, we, not like rafting trips we try to do we haven't got to do any ski trips but you know things like that you know we're and not necessarily some of the money that we have already that's divvied out through legislation and um that we can use that for but mostly like i said uh, the fee portion of it is that goes back into probation officer training for me you know um, we don't have a specific budget for that um, so when you, you come in and you have to pay a what we call it an intake fee because you got a citation there's an intake fee it's ten dollars uh certainly that can be waived you know if family meets criteria or if they just say i don't have ten dollars okay 
You know, I'm not looking to make money off the backs of people. Um, so it's it's simple. You can't you can't afford it. You don't have it on you. Okay, we're not going to charge you for it. But if they have it, great. That ten dollars, you know, goes towards you know a hundred twenty five dollar registration to you know maybe uh, you know a, a, a trauma training for a probation officer. You know those sorts of things. Um, and yeah, we so starting October first, all those are just eliminated from. Well, so I think that leads to, uh, you know, I had said, what do you need from the community, right? How can the community help if they've been saying, wow, I, I am really on fire now. I'm, I, I'm hearing all the great things that are happening. I want to be part of ensuring this continues. What can the community do? You're, you know, listening and you think, I want to do something. What do I do? Uh, you know, for me, it's just being involved. And so the past two years that I've been chief, uh, we've really focused on, like I said, Jason's Roadshow and getting out there and, you know, talking to community members that, you know, do make impacts. Uh, I, I'm not necessarily concerned about, you know, people going to legislature, legislation and, you know, lobbying for, you know, more funding, more funding. We have a lot of different avenues that we're using. We're being more creative with what we have. For me, it's just taking an active role in your community and you know being that person that could make some change uh you know we are we're looking for mentors uh you know there's obviously going to be some training some background checks and but we need mentors you know we're we're starting to try a partnership with big brothers big sisters um you know that's in the works we have a great community program specialist that i hired two years ago that uh, i'm telling you what it's it's her road show because she is out there doing the legwork and you know, I can't say enough about some of the folks that um, we do partner with. And I'd love to give them all plugs. You know, there's so many of them, but that's the key right there. And that's the, so I love that that's a, a concrete, what can you do, become a mentor, and the avenue, do they reach out to you or to Big Brothers Big Sisters? Uh, we don't have a partnership with them yet. I mean, it's still, it's fresh. I mean, we're in the, the infancy stages of that. Uh, I'd love for him to just contact me. You know, you can come down to the courthouse. Uh, I'll visit with you if I'm there. Uh, give me a call. I mean, I got information on the internet on the state website. But yeah, I'd be happy. Um, you know, sometimes I accidentally drop business cards around. You know, places in town that like yeah, these people they would be great for our office. You know, <laughs> I love it. You accidentally yeah. drop business cards. Like, That's a new one. I've yeah. never heard that. That's and slick. I, I love little, uh, you know, mom pop shops or whatever that they have the, the business card jar right there, you know, and I'm, I, I got a stack full with me wherever I go, man. I just drop them off in there and I'm like, who's this guy? And they, you know, I might win a free sub or something like that. And I'm like, Hey, you ever thought about doing something with kids? Uh, you know, and then the conversation starts just like that, you know? And, um, yeah, like I said, we have some, fan, I, I can't name them all, man, but we have some fantastic community partners that are doing great things for us. And all that information, we'll put your number and, and email in yep. the in the show notes, but just for listeners that, you know, don't want to have to go look it up online on, on the website, w what's the number they can call you? My direct line to my desk is 454-6744. That goes right to my office. All right, and so call Jason, be a mentor, make a difference in your community. We've got some great progress that we've heard on the show, which I love having a very uh, positive tone to this. 
last thing. Yep. You've got a magic wand, and you're able to do a new youth-oriented program, and maybe it's mentoring okay. in Great Falls. Where does it, where where do you see that? Where do you want to? What do you want to see? So we've kind of started this program about. I like to call it. Well, this is what it's called: Mad Skills. We need kids that need transitional living skills, like independent living, independent living skills, understanding what it is to become an adult. So we are, again, there, there, there's one of our programs that we're, we're really working with kids, but one in the, just the beginning stages that I want to see really take off like wildfire. And uh, that's the mad skills portion of it. And just te- teaching kids uh, how to be the best human that you can be. Uh, we go through emotions management, uh, relationships, and there there sometimes can be a therapy. You know, our probation officers aren't clinicians; they're not therapists. You know, we're probation officers, but we wear many different hats. And you know, everybody in that office has taken an active role, not for any extra pay, not for any accolades, none of that, except for what I give them right here. And you know, they're boots on the ground doing the work and you know doing programs that maybe we can't get funding for or it's going to you know deplete our budget in other areas to pay other people to do that they're doing that work and i would love to see um and i won't say that we don't have a lot of that volunteerism from people in the community but just you know for people to come watch that come see that and say, you know, I'm a musician. I would love to teach kid guitar. You know, those sorts of things. Like anything like that, skill building. Um, you know, like this, the, the savvy living piece to it, the independent living skills. We have NeighborWorks, Great Falls Job Service, Alliance for Youth, Youth Resource Center. Um, you know, there's a bunch of folks. Uh, Double Barrel, Lucas at Double Barrel. Oh my gosh, I can't say. I mean, these people give back because... It's just who they are. And they were working with our kids doing cooking classes. Paris Gibson Museum of Art, um, doing art classes with kids. Peak Health and Wellness, uh, you know, letting kids come in and just do an open gym, participating in some of their other activities that they have. This is what we need. Uh, and I want it to grow, to build, just to catch on like wildfire and you know, the more kids that I can serve and get into those programs and then just part ways, the better, you know, I I would love to, you know, feed those businesses and, you know, give kids job opportunities. We've had some kids that, you know, stay on with our engagement program that, you know, they don't, they have no obligation to us anymore. They want to volunteer with us, you know? I mean, that just kind of says something, man. It's coming full circle. Uh, I love that piece to it, but yeah, if, if I had a magic wand, I want that thing just to build and not necessarily take the place of probation because there is always accountability, community safety. I mean, that's at the forefront, but competency development, you know, that's where it's at. I mean, we got to give these kids the skills to be productive adults. And if we don't, we've failed them. We've failed ourselves. Kids, kids are our most valuable resource. Why aren't we you know, putting in the time and effort to them. We should be. Love it. Yeah. So mad skills. Mad skills. Bring your, t- you know, your time, your talent 
to Jason, find out a way that you can work with kids, get them upskilled, have, you know, great relationships that you get to build that are fun, right? I mean, I always say yeah. you, you get more than you you give, right? When you're giving, you're getting back. And so I think that's a great way to end it. Jason, uh, I, I truly appreciate deeply what you have done for our, our, our community, for the youth in our community, you and your team. Uh, as you we've discussed, a real bright spot, a real innovator. And uh, we are all, on behalf of Great Falls, grateful to have you Thank serving. You. I appreciate it. My you, pleasure. That is Jason Rippenberg, the Chief Juvenile Probation Officer right here in Cascade County, doing the good work for 20-plus years. And make sure to reach out and let's get this mad skills on fire.